on which the sermon today is based. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. You can follow through on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Please take your seat. A warm welcome once again to all of you to our New English service that begins today after months and months of prayer, planning, and preparation. I mean, to me personally, it feels like daylight saving comes early because <laughs> normally we start our service at 10.30. And with this New English service, we begin a new sermon series from the Gospel of John. 18 years ago, when ICC Melbourne started on 99 Russell Street, the building that is no more today, I began with a sermon series from the same gospel. And if God sees it fit to do what he did back then, I have this sense of great anticipation what he has in store for us through this new series and this new service as well. So the series is entitled, Come and See Jesus. And I pray that through this series, we can come and see Jesus for who he is, examining his claims, the person of Jesus Christ, what he did and what he said about himself. So we're going to look at three things. There are so many things that can be said about these five verses in the prologue of the Gospel of John, but I just want to touch on, uh, from perhaps a helicopter perspective, three things. The first one is the claim about Jesus Christ, and we see that in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. Just trying to find my clicker here. It echoes the opening words of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the means whereby God accomplished his acts of creation. And he said, let there be light. So the word of God is God himself in his powerful and creative action in action. And throughout the Old Testament, we read, thus saith the Lord. So his word is actually God expressing himself. And we know from verse 14 of John 1 that this refers to Jesus. The word, in the beginning was the word, the word is Jesus Christ because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the beginning was Jesus. And Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, this fourth gospel, wanted uh, to clarify that when the beginning began, the Word was already there. The idea that the Word existed before creation or before time. And the Word is not just the beginning, but it's the beginning of the beginning. Because Jesus had no beginning. 
Ignatius once wrote, there never was when he was not. There never was when he was not. That's why the Jews of Jesus' day started to pick up stones to throw at Jesus when he said in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Because he said that he is God himself. And then the second phrase continued with the, the word was with God and the word was God. It speaks to the, not only pre-existence of Jesus, but also the co-existence of Jesus with God. So the word shares the very nature and being of God because Jesus is God. Yet the word is distinguished from God himself. Though he exists in a close, intimate, personal relation with God, God the Father is distinct person than God the Son. I don't want to get into the Trinitarian doctrine that will cause philosophical nose split this morning. But if you study um, the whole 18th verse of John chapter 1 in chiastic structure, those of you who know uh, Greek and study Greek uh, when you approach the New Testament, you would see that uh, verse 1 to 5 correspond to verses 16 to 18. And verse 18 says, the word made flesh is the one who is at the Father's side. The Father's side is translated in some version as the Father's bosom, indicating an intimate relationship with God the Father. And that's why C.K. Barrett, one of the commentators that I read for this, uh, he wrote, of the Apostle John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse, Jesus is God, but he's different person from God the Father. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, then this whole book, said C.K. Barrett, is blasphemous. But what's interesting, brothers and sisters in Christ, that when Apostle John used the word logos, this is not something that we typically understand as the word. In fact, another commentator said that the word in English, in our English Bible, is an inadequate rendering of the Greek word logos. Because the term logos was something that the Greeks are so familiar with. Stoicism, for example, said that the Logos is the principle of reason. It stands behind the order of the universe, the principle which imposes form on the material world and constitutes the rational soul in man. It is a bridge word used by the Apostle John for people brought up in uh, the Greco-Roman Greek philosophy, that culture. So much so that someone called Justin Martyr in the second century found their way into the Christian faith because of this word, logos. I would like to stop here and ask you to think about what uh, you think um, is meant when 
Apostle John used the word logos. What is the principle that stands behind this universe and behind your life? In verse 2, he reiterated that same point, that the Father is distinct from the Son, and the Son is distinct from the Father. They are equally God, yet they are separate persons. And obviously, we live in a culture here in Melbourne, here in Australia, that is so hostile to this understanding that Jesus is God, that Jesus stands behind the meaning of our lives, that Jesus is the ultimate reason for our lives. So I want to survey some of these objections with you. That's the second uh, point that I want to share today. Could you please click the next slide, thanks. So the objections, uh, the first one is there is no ultimate reason for living. This is what the secular conservative people typically say. The first objection that is mounted by them who reject that there is an ultimate reason for living. 20th century Martin Heidegger, German philosopher, wrote that humans are the only living beings who wonder about the meaning of life. You know, you, you can't avoid that innate desire to find if there is a meaning in life. And big M, not just personal meaning, but the big, you know, meaning of life. But secular people typically argue that there is no God or life beyond this material world. So whatever that meaning of life, God is not in it. So believe in God today is unwelcome, unnecessary, and unimaginable. The felt absence of God is the defining feature of our day. He is unwelcome in the boardroom, bedroom, courtroom, classroom, and even in many of our churches today. And if people say there is no ultimate reason for their lives, it doesn't mean that they do not have good jobs, family and friends, and the means to live in a materially comfortable way, but it just really means that they are not sure what all the activity is being done for. Put another way, they're not sure if they are making and getting something that actually matters, that what they do will make a difference. They're not sure if they can accomplish anything beyond whatever they are doing on a daily basis. They don't ask why, they don't ask the meaning behind what they do. So we just assume, if we live in this secular culture today, that meaning, beauty, goodness, satisfaction, all these concepts, we just assume that they are detached from the wonder of receiving them from the Creator. So believe in God, believe in faith, believe in religion is an embarrassment. But yet we can't shake that feeling off that there is this universal longing for transcendence within us. A nostalgia for an enchanted cosmos, a memory trace of Eden, something beyond the ordinary and mundane that is our lives. That feeling is always with us. There's a nagging voice that says in our heads, what's then the point of my life. So modern culture is obsessed with what one author calls contraband 
transcendence, some sort of illegal import of this sense of transcendence. We modern people insisted that everything is merely matter, nothing more, yet at the same time through their actions, they reveal a deep longing to connect to something beyond the material world. Peter Berger calls it spiritual pornography, a cheap substitute for the real and the beautiful. If you don't believe me, just look at the popular TV shows that we have these days. Lots of them have spirituality theme. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. How many of you watch that? The X-Files, Supernatural, or perhaps the more recent Stranger Things. Now these are cultural imports that have this spirituality theme and it, it, it signals our longing for their transcendence. And the problem with this modern worldview is that it gives us this existential boredom for we live without ultimate reason, without common purpose, without objective values. There's no deep story that governs the cosmos or our lives. And this boredom has fueled the modern obsession for experiences that provide momentary escape. Movies, video games, drugs, alcohol, sex, sports, mindless trolling on social media, anything will do as long as they do not point beyond the material world to some transcendent or supernatural reality. So that's the first objection with the whole notion that there is one ultimate reason for living or the ultimate reason for living. The second objection is mounted by secular people but more modern people who live in big cities like Melbourne. We say create our own reason for living. Stephen Gould says that a purposeless cosmos means that we are liberated to construct our own individual meanings for life. So what people today um, always say, don't think about the person you want to become, just be that person. Stop thinking about the big M, the big meaning of life. Don't try to find it, just create your own. Whatever you feel it's right for you, just live it and stop thinking about what other people have. Another professor from Purdue University, not Stephen, but Paul, who happens to have the same last name, Paul Gold, he wrote that you know, in, in, in his class, philosophy class, he always has asked his students the big questions. Is there a God? What is the meaning of life? That sort of question. And then they spent six weeks discussing those questions, and then he would invite the students back to write an essay about those very questions. So after six weeks, he would typically notice that most students have actually moved from unbelief and non-belief to a firm conviction that God exists. So he thought, that's great. If, if now my students believe that God exists, everything else changes from that point onward. But he was completely wrong. Because even though his students shifted from unbelief and non-belief to believe in God, almost all of them responded to this newfound belief with a shrug. 
Okay, God exists, so what? Pass me the beer and pizza. You know, life goes on. You know, so what if God exists? So apathy was this common denominator today, not conversion, not faith and repentance. 500 years ago, a similar response of apathy towards God would have been virtually unthinkable, but not today. God exists, so what? So in the past, if you are religious, the goal of life was oriented towards the divine. If you're not religious, in the past, the goal of life was oriented towards a virtuous, noble end. But in the modern culture today, the goal of life is entirely subjective. The reason for living, the meaning of life is found within the self. We have found a way to sneak meaning, meaning in a completely subjective sense without appealing to transcendence. Let me speak to Christians. The divining goal of our individual lives as Christians often is no different. That is satisfaction of our personal desires and we use God simply as a tool or at best as, as a consultant. If God can help me to achieve that goal of personal desire, then by all means, I will add him to the mix, whatever that mix contains. But God must meet me on my own terms. If he exists, he should remain an outsider, a genie in, in a bottle. He should be on call when I need him. But he's not a sovereign that can place demands on our lives. This is how I, our culture accommodates belief in God as a tool for us to use. And in this, we fail to honor God as God, and even if we admit He exists. So you see, it's, it's really hard to put this claim that the Apostle John wrote to the modern world, and how should we respond to that? And that brings me to my last point. The answer to the objection lies in verse 3 and 4 where it says, All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Did you hear those words? All things were made through him. So positively, through him, all things were made. But then negatively, without him, nothing was made that has been made. So he's the unmovable cause. You know, everything exists in this world because he made those things. And then first four says, in him was life. So the Apostle John speaks to the self-existence of Jesus, not just the pre-existence word, the coexistence of Jesus with God, but now the self-existence of Jesus. And because he has that life, because he shares the self-existence life with the Father, he is able to impart life to others. And life here is not just a biological phenomenon, but it is a spiritual reality, something that has its source in God. Our lives 
begins in him and with him. We just finished um, the series on the missional church from the book of Acts. And in Acts 17, last Sunday, if you remember, if you're here with us, Paul said that in God we live, we have our being, and we move because our lives are in Him. So Christians, if your lives feel meaningless today, it's because we're not thinking enough. We're not being rational enough. We're not thinking about the implications of what we believe about the universe because nothing in this universe is made outside of Jesus. And then verse 5 says, And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And again, this refers to the uh, creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, that's verse 2, until God said, let there be light. And the darkness represents a scene and the brokenness in the world, which often makes life seem meaningless and purposeless. But the light of Christ shines in the darkness, illuminates the reason for living and giving us hope for the future. So light and darkness that John wrote here, they're not simply opposites. Darkness is nothing other than the absence of light. They're not opposites of equal power, at least, like yin and yang, yin-yang, or good and evil in some dualistic universe. But light is always stronger than darkness. A light candle can always dispel a room full of darkness and not be dimmed by it at all. So God can do the same for you, making you a new creation, removing spiritual darkness by the light which shines in the Word. And in fact, this is why the Gospel of John is written. The overarching purpose of this Gospel is stated in chapter 20, verse 31. They are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the solution of the meaninglessness under the sun that the book of Ecclesiastes talks about, the solution of that meaninglessness is in Christ Jesus. He came to the world and lived a miserable life that ended on a ragged cross. And again, a seemingly meaningless life But the goal is so that we who believe never live in meaninglessness ever again. So Christians believe that Jesus is the Logos that the Greeks have thought in the days of the Apostle John and perhaps until now. We believe that Jesus is the Logos the meaning behind the universe, the reason for living. But unlike the philosophers, Christians believe that the Logos is not a concept to be learned, but a person to be known. Christians believe that there is a God who made us and want us to know Him. But that as a human race, we turn away and we're lost to Him. 
But we are told in this gospel that the word became flesh. He came to find us. If the irreligious people say, find your own reason for living from within, the religious people say, find your own reason for living from outside yourself, the gospel tells us the ultimate reason for living, the Logos has come to find you. It's completely different philosophy, perspective. The Logos, the Word, Jesus Christ, has come to find you. That's giving us the ultimate reason for living. So embrace Him. By faith, you can live a purposeful, meaningful life that death itself cannot overcome. We have a Logos, the Logos of our lives, and that is Christ. I have a phone here, like all of you do in this room. And if you ask ChatGPT what this phone can do for you, uh, it gives you a lot of answers. But one of the wrong ways of using it is to use it as a cutting board, right? I mean, you can cut carrots using your phone, right? And then it will not be as effective as your typical cutting boards that you have in your kitchen. Why? Because this phone is not meant to be used as a cutting board. And perhaps uh, some of you may only use smartphone like this just to call someone. But boy, you know that there are so many features in this phone that should be used. And this is the logos for this phone. You have to know the logos of this phone. The inventor creates this phone with so many features for us to use. We have our reason for living if we go back to our inventor, to the creator God, who now came to us in Jesus Christ. So friends, let us respond to him this morning. If you are still feeling that, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with my life. There's so many things that are offered to me as a philosophy of life. In fact, I don't even think about the meaning of life. I just do whatever is near me or coming at me, and I just grab that, and I just live um, day by day. But Jesus has come to you. He's the only reason for living that you don't find outside, that you don't find within you, but he has come to you. So let us respond to him in prayer.